Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast? It's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. If you think that our legal system is obviously very important, but also extremely boring, you're in for a very pleasant surprise with this dialogue with Professor Mark Fischler. Mark approaches legal practice as a spiritual practice, looks at it from a big picture, integral perspective, and shows how it can better serve us all. He describes how the law is interpreted very differently at different stages of psychological development, and that one of our great challenges is to bring a more mature perspective to bear on law, society, and the great issues of our time. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'd like to zero in and have your thoughts and your understand your vision of a recent decision in uh, the 21-22 court that to my mind, it was just as, in some ways, perhaps even more influential and consequential the, as the Dobbs decision on Roe versus Wade. That was the decision which denied the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the authority to require power plants to shift from coal in order to slow global warming. That seems yeah. that that seems like it's going to affect everyone on the planet. I'd love to yes. hear you your perspective and analysis of the of that decision and etc yeah yeah so really what you have here with the majority in that case is that we've had kind of the growth and it, it, it's ironic because conservatives were on the other side of this a long time ago or maybe the 70s and 80s but you've had this kind of You've got three branches of government, right? You've got the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. But there's really this fourth branch of government, which is the administrative state. And it's kind of this this state that has grown through the legislative branch and, you know, the executive branch where... In, in many ways, they kind of like implement the policies of the things that they kind of put out there. So you get things like the Environmental Protection Agency, okay, which is an agency created by the legislative branch. And so what's happened is, is that it's grown. The, the power has grown. And what, what the majority is saying in these cases is that the administrative agency just can't on their own go ahead and make independent decisions. That that agency needs to have direct direction from the legislative branch telling them specifically what they ought to do and not do. The same thing happened with COVID, kind of, you know, with Biden's team saying, you know, we're going to do this through this agency and make it so that any business that has over 100 people, et cetera, and the Supreme Court put the brakes on that, this Supreme Court, Right. This Supreme Court that is made up of six relatively conservative individuals. And and so what they've said is 
that administrative agency, you can't just do anything that you want to do. That you have to have very specific guidelines where Congress is telling you, you get to do this. And the more, we don't care if it's abstract, it's got to be specific. It's got to be specific that with that coal piece that you are specifically told that you get to do that or do that or, or not do that. And so what they're saying is administrative agency, you have too much power. You have too much unchecked power. And so we're going to rein that power back. And you're only going to get to do what Congress tells you you get to do. And so no more abstract understanding, interpreting. You're going to get specific instructions, and that's all you get to do. And don't go beyond, the, beyond that for your power. So that's where that decision is coming from, Roger. Okay. And Mark, how do you feel about that decision? What's your personal take on that? I think that it's problematic. I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna create an agency, they need to have a certain level of agency. <laughs> they need to be able to develop some perspective. And as long as it's within the the confines of the the general idea of where you're coming from then I think it's okay to interpret. I mean, this is how I kind of feel about the Constitution uh, in general, that, you know, this, this Constitution of ours has many, many abstract principles and ideas that aren't specific, that require interpretation. And ideas like originalism try to deny that, which we can get into and I can talk about a little bit. But, you know, the the... The Constitution, you know, for example, let me see here. Yeah, cruel and unusual punishment. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. You know, that's that's an abstract clause. That's not like a specific clause in the Constitution that says that if you're going to be president of the United States, you have to be 35 or above, right? You know, that, that's some abstract language there. And so abstract language requires interpretation. I don't think we want to get into the business of having con- Congress be that prescriptive. Uh, you know, if we're going to have the agency, then we're going to have to give them some level of agency themselves. To, and again, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be like, you know, absolutely, the administrative state gets to do whatever they want. I think there's a good point that the conservatives are making here. It shouldn't get too, too out of control. There should be some checks. But I think integral comes into play is, is, that, is this part about we can start to take the perspective to lighten up a little bit that, you know, it's not absolute. You know, none of this stuff is absolute. There is no absolute pieces here. There is no absolute right to, and kind of remember that, understand that. And, and I really think that it requires integral thinkers and people at integral centers of gravity to do this because we get to come in and say, I hear where you're coming from. I hear where you're coming from. And I'm going to actually embody that. And you're going to see that to start to allow the humanity and the ability to see other perspectives to come into play. So I hear a kind of magic word here of balance, balance honoring different perspectives, the pluralism. And it feels in so much of what you've said that the challenge is to find find integration and balance. And it feels like a kind of ongoing con that I imagine you must face, you and and the law and and the courts must face. Yes. I'd like to learn your understanding of the shift that particularly the Supreme Court, because that's the most obvious one, has gone through. And if if I understand correctly, usually it's thought of, well, you know, a few decades ago, the court was very progressive. And yeah. then there's a backlash against that effectively, which has been yeah. 
been very strong and very effective and, and quite deliberate, as I understand. And in another way, from a, a developmental perspective, it looks as though, and here's, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, as though there's been a shift from, say, a post-conventional stage of understanding to center of gravity to a more conventional one. Mm. Is that correct? Or yeah. as, a, as a Rorschach test? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it's interesting. You know, I think the the Dobbs case came as this big shock, you know, to the system for, I would say, a majority of the country probably comes down favoring some level of women's autonomy when it comes to that decision. But if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, that progressive era was really an anomaly. <laughs> mm. it, the, the court, I can remember a professor in law school saying the court is generally 10, 15, 20 years behind the rest of the nation when it comes to where we are in terms of our center of gravity. But, you know, we have had some places where we've had, I, I would say the progressives have come out uh, ahead and, and Obergefell, the decision for gay marriage, 2016, was a monumental decision. It was a close decision and it'll be interesting to see if the Supreme Court tries to go back on that one. They certainly have the numbers. I mean, that's reversing 3,000 years of Western way of, yeah. of thinking about going back to the Old Testament and just like, boom, right there. Right. Right. But the country is pretty around that one. You know, that that is, I mean, I've seen it in the classroom. I've taught gay marriage in my ethics class as a subject matter for 19 years. And I've watched radically the, the attitude change around it, where it was a minority that were in favor and they were quiet in my class. And now it's at the point where almost it's not an issue. Like, why are we talking about this? And, and that's from not, I'm, I don't work at a university where the socioeconomic background of my students is upper class, you know? And, and, and so, you know, that's, that's been a change. But, you know, to, to Roger's good point, yes. Let, you know, if we, if we look at this, there was a reaction to the Warren Court's anomaly period there was a strong reaction. And so you saw it with the creation of the Federalist Society, and you saw it with the creation of, of a theory of law called originalism, which was, it's really a created theory to basically, basically say that the Constitution is, is a fixed document and that it says some things, as Scalia would say, and it doesn't say other things. And so the idea is that to in the only way they would say, and this is what a majority of the court says today, the only way to interpret the Constitution is to look at what they said back in 1791 or when the amendments were passed in 1868 for the 14th Amendment. What were they thinking? What did they value? What did they mean? And if it doesn't fit that, then it's not a constitutional right. And if it's not written, so they say if it's not written or if it wasn't valued then, then it's out. And only things that were valued then. Well, isn't that a convenient theory if you're coming from a traditional to modern <laughs> point of view? Because, of course, at that point in history, that's what was valued. There was no progressive point of view at that point in history. I mean, there could be, you know, even, you know, Frederick Douglass's ideas wouldn't be considered, I think, progressive at this point. And well, Mark, let me see if I'm understanding. So, yeah. so there are a couple of things here, it sounds like. One is this doctrine of orig originalism, which seem is guiding the, the Supreme Court, particularly, I think you're saying, it holds that one looks to the original original writing and intent in uh, of the of the document yeah and and doesn't allow for interpretation in light of uh, 
changing circumstances, evolving culture, technology, etc. So, so a couple of things here. One, one of the things that has been so such a dramatic recognition in recent decades in philosophy and psychology and integral th- thinking is the recognition that it's not possible not to interpret. We're always interpreting. Yes. And so it feels like this denies what's actually happening that invariably is happening in as, as any of us as judges make these decisions. So I'd love to hear you speak to that. And also in a particular case, as I understand it, it seems like, well, that would mean the right to bear arms means that it's fine to own a muzzle-loading musket, but nothing else. Am I missing yeah. something? Yeah, no, you're you're not. And 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 I think the probably the the greatest legal philosopher of my in my estimation, is a man named Ronald Dworkin, who passed away in 2013. And he was foundational in laying down exactly what you said, that the law absolutely is an act of interpretation, that you have to interpret, you know, unless unless it says, you know, that, you know, you've got to be 35 to be president. You know, everything else is an interpretive act. And so, you know, to deny that is to deny what they're doing, which they are doing is interpreting. And so, you know, let me give you an example. We'll come back to the right to bear arms one. But one that I talked about before was Brown versus Board of Education. You know, if you play out originalism, then in the uh, interpretation, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was passed in 1868, then Plessy versus Ferguson is a good decision because... And Plessy versus Ferguson was? Plessy versus Ferguson was the decision that it was okay to to segregate, that equal protection did not mean that African-Americans could sit in the same train car as white folks, that segregation was okay, that under the Equal Protection Clause, that's not a violation, okay? As long as the schools... And, and the cards were equally okay. As long as, yeah, theoretically, which they never were. It didn't work like that, but yeah. It didn't work like that, no. You know, the, the schools were dilapidated. The water fountains were disgusting. Everything was third, third rate compared to the white experience. And so that's what Plessy said. And then the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board overruled it and said, no, if you interpret the Equal Protection Clause, it really should mean this. And universally, all conservatives agree that Brown was a good decision. Brett Kavanaugh, you know, in his hearings said that Brown was one of the top four decisions in the United States history, most important. Well, the problem is originalism can't comport with Brown because in 1868, The original understanding was when they passed that amendment, the 14th Amendment, Blacks were segregated. They were living separate lives. And so when they passed the 14th Amendment, they didn't mean integration because that's the way we were living. And so conservatives got a hold of that and said, Scalia said, okay, I grant you that, but... I'm not talking about what they did. I'm talking about what the word meant then. And so, well, it's not like the dictionary in 1868 changed. You know, equal protection was equal protection. And it wasn't like they didn't have a firm understanding of what the word meant. What changed was the times. And our understanding of what equal protection meant once we started to live in a society where we were bumping up against each other a lot more and crossing paths that we saw that equal protection truly meant you had to be integrated, not segregated. And so the times is what changed. But Scalia and originalists deny that evolving change of time an interpretation. And that's the performative contradiction with originalism 
is that they are interpreting and they have to interpret with the times, but they have a hard time owning that. So yes, you have cases like, you know, the right to bear arms and, and, you know, what does that mean? The right to bear arms? Well, if you're a ritualist, that means that right to own a musket and that we can outlaw all other weapons because, well, no, they don't say that. They say you have a right to handguns. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem really with that interpretation. I get it. Why? Because that's what we use today, you know, in, in this environment. The question is, how much can you constrict that? And I think that that's a real interpretive process, you know, where the state can, you know, how far the state can go in restricting your ability to process your weapons and own them in different places, et cetera. Those are good questions. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up a kind of a, a parallel thing, how we've been changed, it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, slavery is not prohibited. In fact, right. it's just the given. It's the way we do things. I, I think it was St. Patrick, the patron state of Ireland, was the first Christian leader ever wrote anything against slavery specifically because he'd been a slave and it wasn't a great thing. That was back in the 400s. So if you were going to look at our positions on slavery based on the Old Testament and the New Testament, just, well, if you're a slave, praise God and be a good one. And if you're a master, praise God and be a good one. You know, and that's about as, you know, and there are all kinds of laws in the Old Testament of things you could do with slaves. And, you know, it, it gets pretty, uh, it gets pretty complex. But at some point, scripture be damned. This is just not right, and we're going to have to amend the Constitution, and we're going to have to fight a big bloody war because it's just no longer acceptable because where we reach evolutionary in our our history as a species or a democracy or a country. So it's anyway, it's similar. At some point, you just have to say, no, literalism, you know, stone a woman if she commits adultery. Can you imagine? And there's no... They don't stone the men, just the women, you know. Right. Uh, that's not exactly okay. But anyway, so in, just building on kind of what you were saying in the the you know in the in the regards to slavery, which is still up. But I, even the most conservative at this point, unless they're Nazis, you know, right, very very far right, are going to say you know that slavery was is okay and we should bring it back. At least I would hope. Well, I mean, you know, fortunately, we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that kind of outlaw, you know, slavery, owning another person, all of that. So, you know, that part of the Constitution, which was a part of the Constitution, the original part of the Constitution, absolutely honored slavery in one part of the country. And, you know, that's written in there, but now it's all X'd out if you get an original or if you get a copy of the Constitution that has original language in it, they cross out the sections that have to do with slavery. But yes, we we evolve as a people. And it, it, it brings up another point that I said a little bit earlier in terms of this. We've given the court this absolute responsibility of being the only people that interpret the law, and that it's not always been that way. Abraham Lincoln, you know, I wrote about his jurisprudence and his interpretation of the law and how he looked at things. And he, you know, he, he, he was competing with the courts. He was competing with his own point of view, which was far more holistic. I mean, it wasn't where we are today. You know, he, he never quite thought that African-Americans and white folks could actually fully live together in an integrated way. But he thought they should be free and that, that they deserved uh, equal protection under the laws. Etc. But he, you know, he he looked towards the Declaration of Independence and the language of the Declaration of Independence as really our founding language of of you know life, liberty, and you know, and pursuit and all of those things in terms of the equal dignity of all beings. He went there, and so there's these competing visions, and we can't forget that. And and part of what I want to say to everyone today is that. We all need to be a part of the process. We can't just give it over to the Supreme Court that these these questions about rights are political questions. And and that requires all citizens to be involved in that. That, you know, what I see through some of these abstract clauses in the Constitution is that we can 
can become more holistic and more inclusive in terms of how we look at our rights. And so that we start to see through the different clauses that we can justify a fundamental right to education, that we can justify a fundamental right to healthcare, that we can justify, we can justify a fundamental right to a living wage, that we can justify looking at property and not the, you know, the tra traditional Lockean way that we've been, you know, no pun intended, locked into for so long that we actually can start to see that we have a different relationship with the land and that we have a different relationship with other nations. And, 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 and you know, and so that we can start to recognize that we are truly cosmopolitan citizens who are, that the earth is a part of us, that we are connected to animals and to all sentient beings. And that there is that rights that go along with that, rights that we haven't recognized at this time. But if we are going to go back to Roger's concern about climate and the earth, and here I am in New Hampshire, where I should have about three or four feet of snow, and there's none. And it's about 50 degrees out. I was just walking the lands before I got on with you gentlemen with a logger or a, a, a person who works with trees because we had a bunch of a windstorm and a rainstorm that took down a bunch of stuff on our property. But this is dramatically different weather that's impacting our ski industry, impacting our earth in different ways. We need to relate differently. And I believe our constitution allows us, because of the abstract clauses, ways to start to relate differently and start to see our sentient connections with all beings, and, and that includes obviously the earth. And and Mark, what I what I hear you now beginning to do is bring a larger perspective to an understanding of the legal system and political system and the possible implications and, and progressions that could be made here. And you're implicitly bringing in an integral perspective, a perspective which acknowledges, for example, different developmental stages, different perspectives, evolution, cultural evolution, the eagle evolution, etc. So I'd love to hear... I'd love to hear a couple couple of things in particular. I'd love to hear how you see an integral understanding, an understanding which is open to and embraces diverse perspectives uh, of various kinds. How how that how you see how your what your vision is of law from that integral perspective, and then I'd like to ask you about some things that's implications for specific things, such as you mentioned animal rights. I think of, for example, inequality in our culture. I think of, you know, the threats to the environment. But but first, could you say, as you're beginning to, I think, what your vision of the law is from your integral perspective? Well, the, you know, the, the law is a Lower quite lower right hand quadrants phenomena. Meaning, it's a social social institution. Yeah. It's a social institution on way on the ways that we interact with each other and agree to interact with each other as a society, and and so that requires an understanding of of our culture, of our values as a people. That, that each set of laws is a reflection of the values of the people that inhabit them, whether it's, you know, you go back to the earliest forms of law that we recognize or Hammurabi's code or in Moses's, our, our 10 commandments in terms of the laws, or you can even look at the, uh, John mentioned the Bible that, you know, the 613 laws of the Torah, you know, uh, in terms of an expression that, that the law is that reflection of our systemic, expression of our values as a people. And that from an integral perspective, it's important that we become self-conscious of that fact, that there is this exterior and there is this interior, and that it is a developmental process. That, you know, we don't, we didn't recognize human rights until I think like the 15th or 16th century, that we didn't recognize women's rights 
you know, until the 19th century. And so there has been this developmental process where we have become more and more inclusive of sentience, of, of beings, and how we relate to that. And so I want to help create, you know, organizations that are conscious of that and that, but, but are deliberately inclusive, that aren't leaving out any of the richness of the past because you know we're, we 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 won't we won't be whole without that and so to to be deliberately conscious of our traditional historical laws our our conventional to modern forms of laws to our progressive forms of laws and see how they integrate see how they fit see how they can we can be deliberately more inclusive. I think the language I use at the conference is, you know, integral democratic inclusivity. And that, you know, as, as a society, can we be more and more inclusive? And so, and that goes into some of the things that I think you want me to talk about and that, what that might look like. But implicit in that, Mark, I think there's a call to individual development yes. that we get work on ourselves at the highest level of morality that we can achieve in this lifetime so that we can be more inclusive. We can understand and we can start hearing the conservatives and hearing the progressives and hearing these different things and bringing it together to not balance, but maybe to a higher mode of being where the, the good that each side brings is is honored and we come up with something that works for us. And that takes, like you said, this, these are basically new ideas, women's rights, the abolition of slavery. These are just things that are, and then animal rights and forest rights and, and all of this stuff. But this, this requires a great deal of, of introspective and, and uh, discipline practice, I would think. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot, trying to maybe put a presentation for the integral European conference about theories of justice and, and, and looking at justice and, and, and really kind of what you're talking about, John, uh, and, and, and Hansi wrote a piece that again, sometimes I've been very much on the same page as, as those gentlemen that, that write that, you know, they put something out that I thought was really interesting that, when we, when we kind of look at different theories of justice, which is kind of a lower left, we might say, cultural phenomena in a way, or maybe some might argue lower right, but within it, there's four quadrants or four kind of like approaches that could kind of deepen our understanding that I think would be helpful for our all of us. And, and so, you know, one could be kind of like, on the upper left, like Kant's categorical imperative, uh, Immanuel Kant looking at, you know, this kind of what you must do as an individual, you know, or or in in terms of how you see things intentionally, that from the categorical imperative, that perspective looks at universalizability. What if everybody in the world does what I'm about to do? And then also at the same time sees intrinsic worth. And then you kind of combine those into your right action. And so imagine contemplating that. And that is one approach to justice, but it's partial, right? And so there's also, you got Aristotle and kind of, you know, the Greeks and the virtue-based and the Stoics and kind of like, and they're talking about, excuse me, right action. Like, what must you do? What, what, what are the things that, you know, you ought to do as a person? You know, what are the things that you ought to cultivate? Some of the things that Steve McIntosh on your show was was talking about. But that's another piece that's kind of more the observable, factual piece. And then you go below in the four in the in the quadrants, and you've got, you know, the utilitarian on the right-hand quadrant. What what is the greatest good for the greatest number? Right? And kind of, and you could turn that into a bodhisattva vow of sorts of like of taking many beings into account. But at the same time, you have like Rawls's theory on the left or the, the contract theories of, of you know, uh, what are we going to do when we come together as a society? Rawls is vile of ignorance. The idea that if we're all blind and we don't know our race or lot or gender in society, what are the agreements we're going to come to together 
to build a just society. And, you know, and so we've gotten caught up in the notion that one of those is kind of correct when they really all are partial pieces of the story and, and that we've got to take all of those different pieces into account. And so from, from an integralist point of view, we can start to build that. We can start to build where we start to take those different pieces into account when we interpret the law. We can take those different pieces into account when we start to build our company and we, we decide on how we're going to treat other people. So, you know, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. So inclusive, inclusivity here means not only what we usually think of as inclusivity is inclusive, including the rights and concerns of different groups or sub or communities, but also an inclusivity of different perspectives on how yes. we understand law and justice in the first place. And the one of the central thrusts of integralism is how to integrate different perspectives and ideas, how we integrate those, for example, the four legal perspectives you just outlined into some transcendent unity of some kind. So some great something some some kind of integration. Uh, yes. Perhaps too much to say transcendent unity but some sort of integration. So you're talking about a very broad kind of inclusivity here, and you mentioned animal rights. And yes. yeah, that that seems like if we follow the trajectory that you pointed out, John, of say, say the acknowledgement of, of the, uh, the abolition of slavery and the recognition of women's rights and, and, and the rights for equal education, et cetera, interesting question. What are some of the cutting edge things that will deserve inclusivity now? And you mentioned one, Mark, and uh, perhaps animal rights. You know, there are 80 billion animals are uh, killed and, con and consumed every year in the, on the planet and often raised in horrendous conditions. And if we include, if we adopt a world-centric perspective or in which we embrace the concerns of all conscious creatures, as so many spiritual traditions have emphasized, then we are faced with, well, how do we, how do we hold uh, our treatment of animals? Uh, love to hear you speak to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful statement. And it's, uh, you know, if you're on the spiritual path, then, then, you start to gain an appreciation for sentient beings. And as some of us have, you know, taken on a bodhisattva vow, which requires, you know, that we make a commitment to alleviate the suffering of all sentient beings at all times. And that that comes before yourself. And, and so you can't take those words seriously unless you take into account the experience of animals and, and, and all of the ugly, barbaric ways that you describe. Even going beyond that, it, it changes our relationship to our property or what we consider property yeah. as our population grows, we intrude further and further and marginalize and make smaller the spaces for animals to live their life and in their space. And it's, you know, I was reading in the New York Times about coyotes kind of in a town in, in Massachusetts on the shore, North Shore, that they're going to hunt and get rid of because they've become a deep nuisance in killing some of the small dogs and, you know, some pretty brazen behavior, but why, you know, why is that? And, and, and it's, you know, we are, we are taking up more and more space and we don't have the recognition and respect for those beings. So, you know, I, I think it, the animal population as well as the way that we treat the earth is 
you know, it's, it's kind of been this thing where we are, we see a disconnection and we treat it as something that in a utilitarian way that we use as opposed to being a part of us. And, and, and so, you know, we do that with so many aspects of the environment, whether it's, and, and, you know, the irony, right, is that we don't breathe without trees. But what is our relationship to trees? You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I live, I live in the woods, I live where I own seven acres, and I, and part of the property that I touch is another 12 to 15 acres, where, you know, I'm not, I've got a pond, and, and all of that, and I get to, to reap my relationship with the earth every day. But, you know, that's, that's not common. And, and those are, those are problematic aspects. I, I also think, you know, to, to improve things in, in, in terms of how we relate is, you know, how we truly treat others in terms of people with disabilities, you know, uh, Martha Nussbaum and the philosopher, another philosopher, Anardi Sen, probably said his first name wrong, I apologize. But they came up with a capabilities doctrine uh, as a kind of an improvement to Rawls's theory of justice, in that we ought to look at ensuring that people have the capability to live a meaningful life, you know, whether you have, you know, disabilities, paralysis, et cetera. You know, we've done a lot with the American with Disabilities Act, but there is so much more that we can do to honor the equal dignity of all beings. And and then, you know, going beyond that is 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 starting to understand differently what what are borders? What it, what does it mean to be a citizen? Because you know, ultimately on a on a deeper integral perspective, we are cosmopolitan beings that inhabit Mother Earth and that really the, 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 the property is not ours. You know, it never was. It wasn't the Native Americans either. It, it's the Earth. Yeah. It belongs to the Earth that we are really not that long in terms of humans inhabiting this Earth for a certain period of time. Yeah, Earth, earth as as mother. Yeah. And that's going back to reowning ancestral wisdom that maybe in our evolutionary rush that, you know, get to modernity and all these things, we, we left some of that stuff by the wayside. And maybe that was temporarily necessary to get where we needed to go. But at this point, we got to dig deep and find that, that deep empathy uh, and not just seeing perspectives um, intellectually, but actually feeling into other sentient beings, how they think and how they feel. And from their respect and kindness emerges. And again, the law can only do so much, but it has to be matched with our own interior work and our own interior changes so that, that, you know, these things aren't dissonant, but they're, they're working together to create the greater whole. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in thinking about laws too, you know, just to, the right to self-actualize, you know, that that is not something that is fully recognized and appreciated, that that it would be helpful if we created laws in that way where we recognize the interior work that is necessary to be deliberative democratic citizen who is a part of a dialectic uh, of awareness and appreciation of all beings. You know, those are, Roger and John, those are some of the things I think about in terms of, you know, what where, where we might be able to go in terms of creating greater levels of inclusivity of beings and an appreciation of the interiority and, and life of all beings. And, and maybe we should talk more about responsibilities also. Like going back to Justice Thomas, you mentioned, you know, nationalism and and I, I, I really agree with that. But we have the responsibility to self-actualize, not just black people, but, you know, all people. Yeah. And and to have that embedded is in the educational system, in the moral imperative of we are as a culture will begin to help all these other areas. And, and let me let me add to that, John, with what I I think is a context that is, it comes up, it comes up with a question, and that is, 
My understanding is that there has long been, you mentioned Plato, Mark, uh, a recognition that that laws by themselves are not enough, that what is required is an educated population that can first give voice to the laws and then interpret and fo follow them. And more recently, you mentioned the author Hansi Freinacht, who has been arguing for metamodernism, a, a social and, and philosophical movement beyond postmodernism. Post and one of the central themes of metamodernism is that we, that any good society now, now that we have an understanding of inner development, now we, we know how important it is, any, any good society and political institution and legal system ought to be one which acknowledges and encourages inner development or self-actualization self is the term used. So bringing those together, it seems as though, as though, could it be that we, how, is the, what's the legal, is there a legal way of supporting people in that kind of self-actualization, both individual and collective, that we may need in order to survive? Yeah, well, I think it would it would require us to further define. Let me look at the Declaration of Independence, the beginning language. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, you know, and that, that they're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That we may need to spell out what that means. What is happiness? Yeah. And 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 the inverse is, you know, what is suffering? And, and so, and, and what are the root causes of suffering and what are the root causes of happiness? And then starting to talk about how the, the right to self-actualize, the right to inner growth must be a fundamental right for us to kind of live a meaningful existence and, and an existence that appreciates the earth. I mean, you don't, you know, you, you, you can... You can speak about loving the earth and this, that, but, you know, what are your everyday actions? And your everyday actions are impacted by your interior growth, by your interior awareness and your interior processing. And so, you know, until we start to spell that out and, and, and make that, um, you know, because what law is, is just our collective coming together in deciding about what we value as a people. And, and, and so when we can start to collectively come together to say, we value this and we honor this and we start to live this, then, then things will start to change. But it's gonna require that interior work, that moral development, uh, probably a co conversation for another day, but, you know, some of the things that I would tell you, my students experience and what I see in our schools is that inner moral development is truly absent and it's creating a whole host of problems for many reasons. And, and Mark, I love what you said about maybe we need to unpack what happiness means because we in our culture, we have a pretty superficial understanding of happiness. And yet if we look back say, to, to the Greeks and their concept of eudaimonia, that eudaimonia, having a good spirit in one, and the recognition in Aristotle, Plato, that, that a good life and a life of true well-being and satisfaction means not just, uh, not just pleasurable sensations and experiences and possessions, but a self-actualization, a self-fulfillment, that that is a eudaimonic life and, and from their perspective, much more satisfying. And now, 2,000 years later, we have that, more than 2,000 years later, we have that backed up by psychological research showing that, yes, that that the American dream of, you know, two cars and this and that and possessions, uh, you know, is, is not nearly as satisfying as a life oriented towards, towards actualizing, towards growth, towards meaning, purpose, service, compassion, love, etc. So 
your idea of unpacking happiness feels like a really important mission for our society and perhaps the legal system. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's, it's, it's paramount. I, I, I think that the inner development of beings, I, I think I have a daughter who's 11 in fifth grade and developing those kinds of values also develops, helps us develop a culture of care. And, and so that it's not, you know, just how I see others, but how I treat others. And in, in, in terms of, of seeing, my, my daughter was yesterday sharing a story about how they got into groups and she got a friend chose her to, to do this exercise, but she noticed that one of the kids was alone, an, another gal. And she went to the teacher to say, could that child join their group, even though the numbers were going to be off? And so, you know, nobody else did that. We helped Aurora see at that point and that we, we really encouraged and supported her in, in, in that endeavor of seeing others and, and looking beyond the self and, you know, which Rogers, we understand, and John, we understand that self is a very <laughs> limited notion and, uh, you know, ought to be dealt with that way. But, you know, developing that, developing the understanding beyond the ego, understanding our true relationship with the world, you know, developing that kind of spiritual understanding. There's, th these are necessary components for us to embody and be with Mother Earth and as we explore further and further into the multiplex of galaxies and universes out there, these are paramount pieces. It feels like we've got a lot of work to do to understand, coming back to Roger's point about what is happiness, what is suffering, and developing the inner human in a way so that we can create laws, make laws, embody laws, that honor all sentient beings. Beautiful. May it be so. Yeah. Mark, we're probably coming towards the end of our time, but there's a there's a, uh, a couple of lines in the Tao Te Ching, which I have found just extraordinarily impactful, and I'd love to have your reflections on them. They talk about uh, the Tao, and, and, and in, in Taoism, the Tao is many things, but one of them is uh, is to live Taoistically, is to flow with life. You use the term for your life, Mark, of surrendering to life. And so it's an organic Tao, understood in this way, is an organic flow, non-resistance, like water is a similar, is an often used metaphor. And the lines say that when the Tao declines, morality appears. Mm -hmm. When morality declines, laws appear. And mm -hmm. uh, that seems profound. Love to hear your yeah. reflections on that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's something I teach in one of the books I use in my ethics class. It has a chapter on peacemaking ethics. And one of the points of the chapter, there's there's three components of peacemaking ethics. And and one is connection, the second is care, and the other is mindfulness. And when they talk about care, they say that we have moved away from natural care. And that, you know, we're kind of hyper the other way with agentic kind of care. And I, and I use an example in my class of when I was a little kid, I was a jock and I was playing T-ball. I can remember going up there and they would pitch the ball to you like from very close away. And I remember it was, you know, I got the third strike and, you know, I was supposed to sit down. And I remember my mother, my French Algerian mom, uh, saying like, oh, come on, you know, just, just let him have another swing. You know, like, what's the big deal? He's so sweet. He's up there. And it's, you know, let him have another swing. 
And I remember my, you know, my dad saying, "No, the rules are the rules. <laughs> He's got to go to the back of the bench, and he'll take his turn in nine turns, etc." And and you know, and so I, you know, I what I say to my students is that, you know, we 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 forget that you know if if you just get timeouts your whole life, if you're just held to account. You're never going to listen to that. You're not going to grow. That it requires this natural level of care, this natural level of love. That you know, we. I remember seeing the Dalai Lama once, and him explaining to the audience how you know it, you would die, or or people die within five weeks of birth unless they're held, unless they're loved, unless they're caressed. There's no law around that there is no you know that is that is that natural you know expression and and so we are as a society you know when when I do spiritual teachings and work with some of my students that want to do that I call it the collective trance you know that we live in a collective trance that doesn't see the glue and the interconnection of all beings that we see a sense of separateness. And when we see a sense of separateness, then it requires us to build laws and rules of engagement because we don't see the the natural interconnection of all beings and our absolute nature of unity, consciousness, of oneness, of that, of what is. That's all you know, beyond words, as we all know, we can't really describe the indescribable. But, you know, when, when we live in a world of relative understanding that of sees these limitations, then rules of engagement become necessary for us to live at least what, what we might call uh, civil existence. <laughs> and yeah. I think we could certainly get better on that front. But I think until we can see more clearly our absolute nature, then laws become something that are necessary for us to coexist. And, and wise lawyers, the people that can put it together for us. And it's quite complex. And uh, you've, done an, you've done an amazing service, Mark, in uh, bringing this to us. And I Mm-hmm. really want to thank you. And and I would like to open uh, the possibility that you'll be back on Deep Transformation. Uh, it's just been... Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to... Uh, you know, there's some experiences on the educational front that yeah. uh, are near and dear to my heart that I think I would love to tackle and explore with both of your wisdoms and insight. And I do want to say to the audience that these guys are doing wonderful things since we were together in Sedona, I've had an opportunity to listen to maybe 20, 25 different programs, and I've gotten so much out of it. And this is a, a mitzvah that you are both providing our world. I am I'm deeply grateful to be listening and, and hopefully maybe to have shared a little bit of wisdom in the process in our show together. Well, you've certainly done that in spades. So thank you so much, Mark. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? You know, I mean, I just I just encourage everybody to be a part of the deliberative democratic process that we are at least a part of in the United States, to attend your town council meetings, to be involved in your democracy. It's quite easy to live in the trance here and sense that we don't matter, but you do, and we do, and we can influence our laws, we can influence our communities, and we need you. You are indispensable for making this a better place and a better world, and it's urgent. Yeah. We need to embody what Dr. King described as the fierce urgency of now, and so you know, may you take Dr. King's wisdom and get involved in whatever way that you feel moved. But please don't sit on the sidelines because other voices fill the vacuum otherwise. And the more voices that have insight and understanding and see things a little bit more holistically, 
we have an impact of, you know, repairing the earth. And uh, as, as the, you know, ancient Judaic expression of tikkun olam, you know, that is our duty, that is our responsibility. So please do that. And if I can ever be of service to any of you, please feel free to reach out. My email is out there at mjfischler at plymouth.edu. Thank you. Uh, Mark, thank you. You've, you've opened a whole new world for me because I had <laughs> I'd never thought I'd be study, studying or at least investigating things, topics like uh, constitutional law, but you've made them fascinating. You've given us an education on a variety of topics and you've, you've presented a vision of possibility for us as a society and as a, as a society embodying a more holistic, humanistic, spiritual, legal system. And clearly we need that. And so thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Roger. And thank you, everyone, for for being a part of this experience. Deep respect, gratitude. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.